If you have a copy of God's Word, Scriptures, the Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5. We've been in a series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus. And we come today in our regular exposition opening up of this letter to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'd like us to read verses 22 through 33. Please follow along as I read. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This passage is well known as one of the central passages in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, on the subject of marriage. In fact, this is the third time that we have returned to these verses on March 18th, some weeks ago, about a month ago, we asked the question of these verses, uh, what does this passage teach us about the distinctive role of wives within marriage? And then we had a couple weeks away from our series in Ephesians, came back last week and asked the question, what does this text teach us about the distinctive role of husbands within marriage? And I hope, by God's help, we were able to see some important and wonderful and precious and central truths about biblical marriage conveyed in this passage. Uh, but it is my understanding of this text that we would be missing the point entirely if we did not appreciate that Ephesians 5 and all that it says about marriage is meant to be a, a picture or an image or a dramatic depiction and portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. I said on March 18th, and I say it again now, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible uh, because the truths contained therein are in every way glorious and ought to be precious to every saint, every child of God, every member of Christ's church because undergirding and even brought to the fore of this whole passage is the assumption, the glorious, the profound, the wonderful assumption that the Lord Jesus Christ regards his church as his own bride. That is a precious truth. We are a local church, a, a local expression of the church of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, Emmanuel Church, 
Christ regards you as an expression of his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul even goes so far as to cite Genesis 2.24, instructions given about marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He cites that verse, and then he argues that that verse is actually referring to Christ and the church. Oh, it's referring to a husband and a wife, but as a, a pale reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was sent from his father and sought after his bride, the church, and won her and rescued her and saved her and was joined to her. Even uh, the, the images of a one flesh union becoming one with his own bride, the church. I mean, how can that be? Brothers and sisters, this mystery is profound. And I'm telling you, as Paul has told us, that it refers to Christ his bride, the church. I have four observations I'd like to make today in answer to the question, what does this text teach us about Christ and the church? We've, we've looked at, if you've not been in on those messages, they're online, but we've looked at the question of what does this say about marriage between a husband and a wife? Now we want to ask the question this morning, what does this passage teach us about Christ's relationship to his church and there's four what I hope will seem to you very plain and obvious truths that come right out of the text if this sermon is not clear and if these points are not clear I failed you this morning but hopefully as we go through the passage these points will seem transparently clear and I pray that the Holy Spirit gives the eyes of your heart uh, to see of the glory of these truths four points this morning first of all Christ leads the church Secondly, Christ loves the church. Thirdly, Christ sanctifies the church. And fourthly and finally, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He leads the church, loves the church, he sanctifies the church, and fourthly, he nourishes and cherishes the church. And then if we have time, I hope to briefly share five lessons I think we're meant to learn from this passage. So first of all, we see in Ephesians 5, verse 23, Christ leads the church. Please follow along again, Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church or the leader of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Christ is the church's head. He is the church's captain. He is the Lord of his bride, the church. He rules his church. He gives his law to his church. He leads the church in its mission. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, as head of the church, has the prerogative, the authority, to set the agenda for his bride, the church. And as such, since Jesus is the head of his bride, the church, the church is to submit to him. Christ is the one who initiates with leadership. The church responds with glad-hearted, joyful, willing submission to Christ, who is our head, who is our captain and our king. Well, this truth implies... That the church itself, universal or any local expression of that church like our own, does not have the authority or the prerogative to come up with its own agenda. So so we don't gather here and and get out a whiteboard and say, what would be be nice for us to do as a church? What would be helpful? Uh, What would be enjoyable for us as a congregation of God's people? No, we have our eyes on Christ, hopefully, looking to him to lead us We march at the command of the Lord who is the head of his bride, the church, and who leads her in her mission. So it's it's pivotal 
brothers and sisters, that we always keep our eyes on Christ. Everything the church does should be in response to his leadership as expressed in his word. The church can so easily get sidetracked with nice things we can do, nothing necessarily wrong with them, but we can't lose sight of the fact that we are men and women bought by the blood of Christ, made part of his elect bride who are called by him to submit to his headship and his leadership. The Lord Jesus calls the shots. He is Lord of his church. He leads us in our mission. Because Christ is the head of the church and because his will is clearly stated in his word, the church should never, can never allow itself to be sidetracked. There's no reason we as the church need to be confused about our mission. There's a sense in which every true church should be doing the same basic things because we all have the Bible, we all march under the headship and leadership of Christ, and Christ has made his plan, his, his will for his church plain in his word. We go to the Bible, and therein we find the headship and leadership of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the things I think that is so exemplary about Christ's headship, and it's such a good example to those of us who are husbands. Our husbands are called to lead their wives, right? Uh, And when we contemplate the leadership, the manner in which Christ leads his bride, the church, what do we see? Clear direction. Clear vision. No one's wondering what we need to be doing. He has led us well. He's initiated in coming into the world and giving his life for sinners. But more than that, he makes known his will for his church. Now, there are a lot of poor husbands who don't lead their families well. They don't set the agenda. They don't initiate. Perhaps they leave a a vacuum of leadership in the home. They might leave the direction of the family vague and undefined, and there's no clarity on where things are going. Not so with Christ. His headship is always decisive. Through his infallible word, his headship is made known. His will is clearly defined. And all that's left for us, brothers and sisters, is to gladly submit to his headship as revealed in the Bible. There's massive implications in this point for the church. There's massive implications for each and every individual Christian. So I ask each and every believer here in this room, I just put this question to your heart before the Lord. Do you think of Christ as your captain? Do you regard him as your Lord? Do you have this sense that Christ commands my life, his priorities are my priorities. What is precious to him will be precious to me. If someone looked at your life, could see it, uh, I just played before them on a projector screen like the ones to my right and left, would they conclude that you are someone who delights in submitting to Jesus as Lord, who, who with glad hearts submit to him? Would they see you as someone who prizes the headship of Christ? Now, lots of people are very happy and comfortable with and love to sing about my next point, that Christ loves the church. But do we rejoice with the same exuberance? Are our hearts inflamed with the same fire and zeal at the thought that Christ leads his church, that he's Lord of his church? Brothers and sisters, Emmanuel Church, we must recognize that we as the church march at Christ's command. It's an old song I learned as a little boy in Sunday school. Trust and obey. Children's song. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I love the last line of that song. What he says we will do. Where he sends we will go. 
Never fear, only trust and obey. That's a children's song, but it ought to be the disposition of every single heart in this room. We're looking to Christ to lead. He is our head, he is our Lord, may it be so. Second observation from the text, Christ leads his church, first of all. Secondly, Christ loves the church. Again, verse 23 mentions that Christ is not only head of the church, his body, but is himself its savior. And then verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is the one who sovereignly saves men and women and draws them into the church. He delivers his people from their sins and cleanses them from all unrighteousness. It's his message of salvation that the church is called to proclaim to the world. Listen, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're wondering what we believe about him, this is not a a, a comfortable, polite, and clean gathering of people who just want to do right. We're people who are trusting, staking our eternity on the fact that the Lord Jesus is a savior for sinners. And it's that message we're called to Proclaim. He's not just the head, not just the leader, not just the captain of the church. He is the church's redeemer and savior. He rescues his bride. Paul is in effect saying that when Christ gave up his life on the cross, he was doing so as a husband out of love for his bride. Brother or sister, you want to know that Jesus loves you? Look at the cross. Emmanuel Church, you want to know if we're precious to the Lord Jesus? Look at the cross. He gave up his life for his bride, the church, and we are but one local expression of that, but we are a local expression of that. And if we are the church, we're precious to the Lord Jesus such that he would even give his life. Observe the manner in which Christ loved his church was the greatest possible expression of love. John 15, verse 13 says this, that greater love has no one than this than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greatest possible expression of love. Christian, what more do you need to see? What needs to be demonstrated? What sign needs to be done for you to know that you are precious to the Lord Jesus Christ? Greater love has no one than this. What are you waiting for Christ to do? The greatest expression has already been done. He's given his life up on the cross to save his people from their sins. But I also want you to observe that Christ loved the church, lest there be any mistake about this when she was unlovely. The message of the gospel is not, okay, get it together, Um, uh, try to clean yourself up as much as possible, reform your manners a little bit, and, 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 and kind of walk the straight and narrow, and then we might receive your application to salvation. No, he loved his church. He loved individual sinners when they were yet unlovely. Romans 5, 8 tells us this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You need to know this because God's love towards you was expressed before you were converted. Even while you were still a sinner and a rebel against Christ, which means his love cannot be conditioned upon your obedience. He loved you while you were yet a sinner. 1 John 4.10 says a similar thing. And this is love, not that we have loved God. No, no, no. That's not the definition of love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, a sacrifice for our sins, a covering for our sins. He did not die for the church because she was so beautiful. 
so wonderful. I just, if I'm ever gonna be whole, I must have the church. No, he died for us when we were unlovely. Just the final thing I want to bring out to you on this issue of Christ loving his church is that Christ loved his church with a particular love. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ gave up his life for his bride, the church. Gave up himself for his bride. He loved her when she was unlovely. And to win her, he came from heaven and sought her. Church was the object of Christ's particular love. He did not make her save a bull. Rather, he died to secure her salvation. If you are part of Christ's church, if you have been saved by grace, if you have come to know the Lord, it is only because Christ came and pursued you and made you part of his elect bride. You have been loved with a particular covenant love. The church was the special object of Christ's affections. I'm married to Jenna. What makes our marriage so special to us? We were the particular object of one another's affections and marriage vows and marriage covenant. It was a particular love I have for my bride and she has for me. Well, so it is with Christ. He loved his church with a particular covenant love. Christian, remember, Christ took names with him to the cross. Names like Ian and Kelly and Caroline. He took names with him to the cross. He came for his bride, the church, and nothing could stop him from making those sinners part of his bride. And no one for whom Christ died can or will ever be lost. Don't we sing that? One of my favorite songs we sing here, He Will Hold Me Fast. Those he saves are his delight. He will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. Why? Because I have, I've got self-discipline down. I've learned the way. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. His vows shall last. His covenant shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold us fast. Just think then. How precious the church is to Christ. He is even said to be her savior. And she is said to be his bride. Christ loves the church. Thirdly, we've seen that Christ leads the church. He loves the church. Thirdly, Christ sanctifies the church. I need you to look with me on it. Verse 25 and on down through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What was Christ's object in saving his church? It was that he would be able to present to himself his bride in splendor and in purity. Therefore, Christ endeavors to sanctify and purify his bride Christ desires that his church be presented to him in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. If you think that the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of purity in the church doesn't matter, my friend, you're mistaken. Christ is passionately engaged in seeing that his bride is presented to him on that great last day spotless and clean. 
He is eagerly interested in the sanctification of his bride and the sanctification of every individual believer. There's some people who think that all God is doing in the world is saving people, but there's so much more than that. Christ wants his bride to be holy. He wants his bride to be holy. He wants his bride to be holy, and he will have a holy bride. And therefore, he takes the initiative in cleansing her, in washing her, in sanctifying her, and making her holy by the power that he puts in the heart of every believer and by the gifts and graces he gives to his church. He is the one who sanctifies and cleanses the bride. It is Christ who is working away the spots and wrinkles and blemishes. And believe me, friends, each of us has spots and wrinkles and blemishes all over. And we as a church have spots and wrinkles and blemishes all over and Christ wants them to be wiped away and to be cleansed and to be made holy. And there's coming a day where every spot and wrinkle and blemish will be gone. And Christ is in effect saying, here, let's get to work now. And on that great day, every spot and wrinkle and blemish will be gone. But in the meantime, let's work, brothers and sisters. Christ wants a holy bride. He delights in a holy bride. And by his power and his grace, may we work and labor for holiness. You've seen these shows, right? I apologize to my Ukrainian friends if you don't have this show in your country. We have a show called Say Yes to the Dress. And the, Aaron's sister was on Say Yes to the Dress, actually. And, and what happens on Say Yes to the Dress? It's, it's you know, brides are looking for, you know, a, a wedding gown, and they're trying to pick the perfect one, and they come out, and it's just perfect, you know, when they actually find that dress. And it's just, it's just pristine, well, what Christ is doing, brothers and sisters, in working for our holiness and our sanctification is to beautify his bride, to make sure that dress is without any wrinkles, no stains on that dress. Let's clean it up. And by his grace, he works along with us to cleanse his bride, the church. Fourthly and finally, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, leads his church, loves his church, sanctifies his church, and he nourishes and cherishes the church. Please look on with me at verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if you're paying really close attention to this text, you might be tempted to think that Paul changes the image here from the church as Christ's bride to the church as Christ's body, but that would be incorrect. See, in this text, the church is seen as Christ's body because it's Christ's bride. Rather than abandoning the marriage analogy, he's thumbing it further, he's pushing it further, he's taking it to its logical conclusion. If the church is Christ's bride, well then the church must be Christ's body. It must be one. At the heart of this image is tenderness and gentleness and sweetness. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church as his own body. The word here for nourish could mean to rear or to bring up or to tenderly steward and care for. It carries with it the idea of warmth and affection. 
We read that he nourishes and cherishes his church. The church is so precious to Jesus. The church is the apple of Christ's eye. He doesn't deal harshly with his church, but he nourishes and cherishes her. He's sweet with her. He's tender with her. Oh, what an example to those of us who are husbands. I'm reminded of the language of Psalm 23 where this nourishing and cherishing I think is so beautifully expressed. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That tender, see that nourishing and that cherishing taking place there. So what have we seen in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 thus far concerning the relationship between Christ and his church? We've seen that Christ leads his church as head of the bride, the church. Secondly, we saw that Christ loves his church and has given his life for all those who are saved and included in the church. Soon that Christ sanctifies the church. He wants a holy bride and therefore we work to grow in holiness. And fourthly, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Now in the next few minutes, whatever time I have left, which is about 15 to 20 minutes, I'd like to give a number of lessons for us as a church. How should the fact that Christ leads his church that he loves his church, that he sanctifies his church, that he nourishes and cherishes his church, how should that impact us? And what lessons should we learn? I have five of them. I'll do as many as I can in the time remaining. Number one, because Christ loves his church, we ought to love the church. Because he loves the church, we ought to love the church. I think one way we could define a Christian is as one who loves all that which is precious to Christ. I often think of that. I wanna love that which is precious to Christ. And you tell me, in light of this passage, what is more precious to Christ than his church? What's more precious to a husband than his bride? Church is precious to Christ, and it ought to be precious to us. We Christians ought to love the church. If we say we love Jesus, but don't love his bride, the church, we're liars. We don't love Jesus at all. If we love the Lord, we will love what is precious to him. You'll hear these sorts of things all the time. I've heard this, I can't tell you how many times. I'm fine with Jesus. It's just all the Christians that drive me nuts. You ever heard something like that? I'm fine with Christ, not so much the church. Give me Jesus, but I don't need the church. In light of what we've seen in this passage in Ephesians 5, how do you think Christ himself would regard that perspective? Just take a guess. Love Christ, don't need the church though. Don't need all those Christians. And one implication of this, I think, if I could press a little bit here, is that I think each Christian should seek to join themselves to a local church, to live in community and fellowship in the context of a local church, because the church is precious to Christ. It ought to be precious to us. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, find a local assembly of God's people and give your life to it, or I should say to them. It doesn't have to be here. There's other Bible-believing churches and Winston-Salem, but Christian, I urge you, if Christ is precious to you, make sure you live in such a way that it is evident that his bride is precious to you as well. I said a number of times to those 
in our church who have the privilege of serving and leading in children's ministry that there are few things that are more obviously pleasing to Christ than loving and serving children and pointing them to Jesus because it's revealed to us in so many places that children are peculiarly special to Christ. You wanna know that you're in the will of Christ? Start with loving and serving children and showing them Jesus. Similarly, there are few things more obviously pleasing to Jesus than serving, loving, covenanting with, and giving your life for the church. Because I contend that nothing is dearer to Christ's heart than his bride, the church. When you give your time and your effort and your tears and your love and your life to the church, you are close to the heart of Christ. Because the church is Christ's bride and is in every way precious to him. If we say we are Christians, we must love the church. Song we're going to sing at the conclusion of the service today. I love thy kingdom, Lord, includes these lines. May it be a reflection of each heart here. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is to return in our lifetime, and I'll just say to you kids here, do you know that the Lord Jesus might return today? We don't know when he's going to return. But kids, Christ might come back today. We should Recognize that if Christ is to return in our lifetime, brothers and sisters, what do you want to be found doing when he returns? Don't you want to be found loving and serving and working for the welfare and beautification of Christ's bride? I do. Wouldn't that be a good thing when Christ returns to find us laboring for the purity and the health of his bride, the church? Well, may it be so. Second lesson we should learn. We should work for the well-being of Christ's church, not just locally, but in every place. We should work for the well-being of Christ's church, not just locally, but in every place. Listen, we should care about the well-being of the church in China. We should care about the well-being of the church in France. We ought to care about the well-being of the church in the Ukraine. We should care about the well-being of the church in California and in our own state, and in Winston-Salem, and in downtown, and in uptown, and in the suburbs, we should care eagerly and passionately about the well-being of Christ's bride, the church. Listen, our local church, annual church, should be a large part of our lives, but we should recognize that Christ's universal church, his bride, is bigger than our local congregation. So we ought to pray for the church in every place. We ought to pray for other churches in our area. We ought to pray for the progress of churches in other countries. We should recognize that our ministry here at Emmanuel that God has given to us is not merely about focusing on our own internal health and growth. We ought to invest in those areas. But we also have a stake in the health of other churches. We ought to give of our time and our resources in the support of other churches and their efforts. We should never neglect the health of this particular local body but we should also be known for serving and blessing and supporting other congregations of God's people. In fact, to be frank, we would not be here if not for the love and investment of so many other congregations. 
I think there were about 10 congregations that gave financially to establish this church. There were at least 10 more who committed to regularly and faithfully and even to this day pray for this local body. We're here because Christians in other states all over the country and even across the pond in England decided it was their business how the church does in Winston-Salem. They decided, these people who I don't even know yet, faces I've not seen, I'm for them, I love them, they're my brothers and sisters, and if they're Christ's, they're precious to me. Well, may we adopt the same attitude toward every true church of the Lord Jesus in every place all across the world. We ought to labor for their good, pray for their good. May we never be fooled into seeking to build a brand or just let's just build up this wall let's grow the thing as big as possible and have blind eyes to brothers and sisters around the world who labor for the cause of Christ we ought to be passionately vigorously and thoughtfully engaged for the well-being of Christ church not just locally but in every place third lesson because the church is precious to Christ we ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's church. We ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's church. This includes tribalism, isolationism, and sectarianism. Listen, Christ desires that his church be one. He prayed for that in John 17. Every true Christian, they're a true Christian. They're part of Christ's bride and therefore are precious to him. And since that is the case, how do you think Christ feels about those who unnecessarily disturb the unity of his church? What do you suppose Christ's attitude is toward division and sectarianism? Sometimes division can't be avoided. And sometimes it's even a righteous thing for one group of Christians to divide from another. That, that can happen. But I contend that even then, Christ is grieved. I'll just mention terms of what I believe to be unnecessary division that displeases Christ. How about hyper-denominationalism? I'm not talking about the existence of denominations. I think that's necessary. But a, a certain hyper-denominationalism. We're a Baptist church. We don't put it on the name, but it's in our confession. You know that attitude, though. I, I was Baptist born, I was Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. That's a tribal spirit. I'm in it for my denomination, for my tribe. Sort of hyper-denominationalism that has no eyes for people outside of your own context. I don't really care what happens to the Presbyterians, what happens to the Anglicans, what happens to the Wesleyans. No, that's, I don't think Christ is pleased with that. We can have differences and still stand as one in Christ. How about slander and gossip against one of Christ's churches? I'm looking at you Facebook users. Be careful what you post online. Christ is grieved when we slander and gossip about another church, a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we slander a particular denomination, when we use our speech to encourage division and to unnecessarily criticize and harm and cut down other local churches. You're not close to Christ's heart when you're doing that. We should be careful about how we speak about other churches and I'll just say, even in our own area. Be careful in the way you speak about other brothers and sisters in Christ. You must recognize that if a church is a true church, it is precious to Christ. 
Another way we do this is perhaps elevating preferences or secondary issues over fundamentals of the faith. If you don't have my particular view of fill in the blank with the conscience issue, if you don't have my particular view of baptism or my particular view of church leadership, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Elevating secondary issues to the place of fundamentals of the gospel, all of that can serve to divide and introduce unnecessary forms of division in the church. If Christ's bride is precious to him, we should labor for her unity. Fourthly, we ought to recognize, this is so important, that there will always be imperfections, weaknesses, and blind spots in Christ's church until he returns. There will always be imperfections, weaknesses, and blind spots in Christ's church until he returns. We labor in a fallen world with an imperfect church. Listen, brothers and sisters, we presently live in the age of spots and wrinkles and blemishes. They're gonna be there. Then you're currently sitting among a church with spots and wrinkles and blemishes. No particular local church is perfect. Maybe there's someone here who's just looking for the perfect church. A church that is just everything you want it to be, a church that accommodates all of your preferences, a church that meets all of your needs, a church that doesn't require you to defer to others, a church that is full of people who think exactly like you, parent exactly like you, dress exactly like you, land on issues of conscience exactly where you land, go to the same restaurants as you, listen to the same music as you, and the list goes on and on. There's two things I would say to you if that describes your heart. First of all, let me say that there is no such church that exists. No such church. That's a one-to-one with your preferences, your needs, your conscience. So many people looking for the perfect church, and what do they end up doing? They bounce from church to church to church. Because maybe for the first year, I've, I've found the new Jerusalem. I found the promised land. And what happens? There's still sinners there. Things come up and differences arise and people get offended. Well, back into the wilderness to find Eden, to find the new Jerusalem. There is no such church. There's no perfect church. The second thing I would say to you, my friend, is that even if such a church existed, why would you want to be a part of it? A church like that doesn't require your love. A church like that doesn't require you to defer to others, which we know is good and godly. A church like that doesn't require you to grow and mature, maybe, in your perspectives. A church like that doesn't challenge you to exercise real grace toward others. And a church like that doesn't reflect the glorious diversity of Christ's bride. Listen, in this life, the church will always have imperfections and blind spots, and it will have more imperfections and blind spots because you're a part of it and because I'm a part of it. The question is not where can I find a perfect church, but how can I help, serve, and love an imperfect church? That's the question. How can I be part of and serve and labor for the good of an imperfect church? And how can I receive the help and love I need myself as an imperfect Christian? That ought to be our posture. Fifthly and finally, and then we'll close. Fifth lesson we should learn we ought to eagerly anticipate the coming marriage of Christ and his bride. We ought to eagerly anticipate the coming marriage of Christ and his bride. I just want to read three verses for you from Revelation chapter 19, verses six through eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, friends, that's coming. That's going to happen. We await that final marriage. Let's eagerly anticipate that day. Let me just say, to those of you who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to observe the way Christ behaves toward his church. He's a savior for sinners. He treasures and delights in all those who come to him in repentance and faith. How he loves those who are lost and how he pursues them and wins them. Would you not want to know such a savior? Isn't he so good? Isn't he so kind? Isn't he so willing to condescend to help and to receive and to forgive and to sanctify? Well, my friend, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you embrace him in repentance and faith, you will be included in his bride, the church. Listen, the verses I read in Revelation 19 about this coming marriage of the Lamb, if you are outside of Christ, that will be a dark day for you. But how glorious if you are numbered among Christ's bride, the church. And it's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to invite you to come and to embrace the Lord Jesus. He will be a husband to you. He will be faithful to you. He will be a savior to you and he will cleanse you of all of your sins. Listen, I got spots and wrinkles and blemishes all over my heart. You come to Christ, he knows how to deal with them. He knows how to wash you, he knows how to cleanse you and he's willing to do that for all who come to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would seal these truths to our heart. We thank you for the ways in which you've loved us, the ways in which you have pursued us and rescued us. You are to us our head and our savior. Be that for every person here, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.